thank you very much for your time coming today. I know you're a very busy man with working 18 hours a day or researching 18 hours a day. So we'll kind of dive straight into it. But um, I first came across your work about just over three years ago when I met a good friend, um, Michael Harris, one of your students, one of your facil facilitators. And uh, so he tells me to say hello. And um, I started going down the journey of um, human consciousness and just fell for it, just constantly opening paradigms. And so I'm finally here three years later doing the breakthrough experience. We'll be doing that tomorrow and then also um, master planning on Monday. So it's an honor to be here. Thank you for your time. No, thank you. So because my, I know you would have shared your story hundreds and hundreds of times by now, but because my audience uh, is most likely new possibly to your work, if you wouldn't mind just kind of taking us on a bit of a journey all the way back to sharing how you kind of first start out in life, you know, you were told uh, you'd never read, write, communicate, that kind of thing. And here you've read now over, you know, 30,000 books. So if you wouldn't mind taking us on a journey uh, way back to then and how you've kind of discovered through your life the values, the axiology, all that kind of thing, and we'll go from there. Okay. <laughs> Shall I cover every hour of every yeah, day? Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, yeah. 65 years? Summary, yeah. All right. Um, well, I was... I think that many of the things that we experience, even in our youth, has meaning and purpose in our life when we look back. We don't always see it initially. Mm. So I was born uh, with my arm and leg turned in. And when I was very young, I had to wear braces on my arm and leg to try to straighten it. Mm. And the, that was there until four. And as a result of that, when I was four, I begged my dad, please let me out of these braces, because a lot of people used to ridicule you and laugh at you. It's like a Forrest Gump thing. Mm. And I think that wanted me, make me want to be free yeah. and not be constrained. So my lifestyle today of traveling full time probably has been impacted by that. Right. I was also told in that same age, about one half, I had to go to a speech pathologist because I couldn't use my mouth properly. I used to put strings and buttons in my mouth and use muscle exercises to try to pronounce. Right. So I had a speech problem. So as a result of that, I'm a professional speaker. Yeah, yeah. So those voids, yeah. uh, early voids, probably had an impact on my, my life plan. When I got to first grade, my first grade teacher invited my parents to the school because I was having problems in learning. And no matter what I did, I just couldn't read, I couldn't get meaning, mm -hmm. couldn't pronounce, couldn't spell. I wrote backwards. I still wrote like this. Right. Still write weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so left-handed, right? Yeah. In those days, left-handed were sinister. Right-handed were correct. But So my first grade teacher had my parents come to school and said, I'm afraid your son will never be able to read, he'll never be able to write. He'll never be able to communicate effectively. Um, he'll never go very far in life, probably never mount anything. But he does seem to want to do sports, because when I got out of the braces, I just wanted to run. So I got to be good at running. I guess I've been on the run ever since. Yeah. So I was true. I did have problems learning at the time. And my parents saw that. And my dad realized I better get him street smart, because he's not going to be academic smart. So at a very young age, he started making me accountable for doing work and by the time I was nine he, he, he made me have to pay for clothing room and, and rent and food and things at the house and I had to work around the neighborhood and do odd jobs and I ended up having nine employees when I was nine years old wow. running a little company. 
And so my dad was trying to make me be able to be smart, street smart. Then I moved from Houston, Texas, where I was born and raised for 12 years, to Richmond, Texas. And I had developed some baseball skills, but when I got there, baseball wasn't the same. Half the time the teacher, the, the, the students, or what he called the players wouldn't even show up, the coach wouldn't show up. It just fell apart. So the other sport that I was able to do was surfing. So when I was 13 years old, I started uh, my surfing adventures. I started surfing at nine, but uh, Houston wasn't uh, the capital of surfing. Right, no. But, um, so at 13, I wanted to go surfing. 14, I, with my parents' blessings, I hitchhiked to California to surf. I went to Huntington Beach, California, where the surf, California surf was. Hmm. At 15, uh, I went to Hawaii. I left school when I was 13, 14. Right. And I went to Hawaii. And I started there living under a bridge at Sunset Beach, Kamehameha Highway. Then I moved to Iaka Beach Park under a park bench, then into a bathroom, then to an abandoned car, and then to a, to a tent. And I was a surf frat, as they called them. And I surfed all day. Mm. And anything to ride big waves was my, my goal. Because I was decent at physical activities, just not academics. And about the only reading I had was the, a friend of mine there could read to me, and I would ask him to read for me because I had problems learning, reading, and pronouncing, pronouncing words. So when I turned 17, living in Hawaii, I nearly died. And in the recovery of that, I was led to a little health food store and then to a special guest speaker one night where Paul Bragg was speaking. Mm. And he was a very inspired man who had helped initiate uh, a health, kind of a crusade across America. Yeah. And one night in one hour, that one man with his one message really got to me and made me think different. Made me think that maybe, just maybe, I could overcome my learning problems and become intelligent and learn how to read. I never thought that was going to happen. I always thought I would be kind of the, the dumb one. Right. And... Uh, not that I wasn't dumb in sports, I was pretty good at sports, I wrote big waves, but academics wasn't it. But that night, I believed from what he had said, and I got a vision that night about me being able to be overcome my learning problems and learn how to read and teach. So after that, a few series of events occurred and it made me come back to Texas and take a GED, high school equivalency test, and eventually a college entrance exam and with the help of a little affirmation that Paul Bragg gave me, that I'm a genius and I apply my wisdom, uh, he told me if I said that every day, that sooner or later my cells and my body would tingle with it, so would the world. So I did that, and somehow I passed these tests, literally guessing. Right. And it, was, it almost felt like it was something higher than me that kind of guiding this. Yeah. And then when I took my first college class, I thought I was going to pass that too, by guessing. But it turned out that I... I got a 27, I needed a 72 to pass. I got it, the numbers backwards. And um, I remember running to my car and hiding in my car. I was so embarrassed and driving home crying because I thought this whole thing about me being intelligent is just not real. And my mom saw me crying in the living room underneath this little Bible stand that I was laying under. And she said, "What? what's happened, son, what's wrong? I said, I blew the test. I guess I'll never be able to read or write or communicate and amount of thing, never go very far, like, like my first grade teacher said. And um, 
she looked at me and she just said something that really made a difference in my life. She said, son, whether you become a great teacher, healer, and philosopher, and travel the world like you dream, whether you return to wine, ride giant waves, or you return to the, the streets and panhandle as a bum like you've done, um, I just want to let you know that your mother and your, I and your father are going to love you no matter what you do. And when they, she said that, I felt really loved. I felt really, uh, I felt her certainty was so strong that it just gave me permission to be me. Mm. And I remember my hand going into a fist, I looking up and I saw a vision of me standing in front of a million people speaking. Probably some sort of dissociative uh, bipolar state or something happening. But I saw this massive vision of me speaking in front of a million people, which has been painted now and it sits in my office. And when she did that, I said to myself, I'm gonna master this thing called reading and studying and learning and teaching and I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to travel whatever distance and pay whatever price to give my service of love across the planet. I'm not going to let any human being stop me from that dream, not even myself. And I got up and hugged my mom. I went into the my room and I got a Funk and Wagnalls dictionary out and I started memorizing a dictionary. And I made a commitment that I would read and study and pronounce, pronounce and and speak 30 words a day. My mom used to test me on 30 words a day until my vocabulary was strong enough. I could use them in a sense with meaning. It was a very slow, tedious growth. But slowly but surely, I grew my vocabulary up. And within a year, I was starting to do pretty well in school. And within two years, I was excelling. And I just started reading. Once I learned I could read, I never stopped. I started reading 18, 20 hours a day. I'd fast, I'd meditate, I'd read. And I'd just go to school, I'd read on the way there, I'd read on the way back as I'm driving. I'd sit in the library in between classes and read. Sometimes I'd read in the middle of the classes. I just, it was like a, a dream to be able to finally read. Hmm. And my reading never stopped. I, I guess I became uh, voluminous in the reading. I started asking what worked and what didn't work. You know, you mentioned about you, you looking through the speed reading program. Hmm. That's what I, I learned by trial and error, what worked and what didn't work for me. And I just started reading every day. And it was averaging four to seven books a day on average. Sometimes on the weekends, I'd read up to 20 books in a, in a weekend and, and try to um, devour as much as I could and as many fields as I could to catch up with the other students and to start to excel. And all of it was around the evolution of human consciousness and the mastery of life and the, you might say, the opportunities to expand our awareness and potential to do something amazing with our lives. I want to do more with my life and I want to help other people do that. Mm. And so I've been ever, for the last 46 plus years, I've been on that pursuit. Yeah. And I do it even today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm working on it today. Until your last breath. <laughs> well, I'm still doing it. Yeah, yeah. And so I believe, so you went from, you started on that big journey of learning and then you moved into uh, chiropractic college, is that correct? Chiropractic. Well, when I was there with Paul Bragg, the night I was with him, I said, I want to become a teacher, healer, and philosopher. That's what came to my mind. He was a, he traveled the world teaching. Philosophy, he talked about philosophy that night and I had a health problem and I wanted to overcome it and I wanted to learn everything I could about healing. So teaching in philosophy. When I was in, when I went to the University of Houston, I, um, I was sort of, by then I was now really excelling. I was actually a pre, pre-med honor society and I um, had the opportunity to go to any medical school I wanted to, but I didn't, felt that there was an excess of organs or deficiency of drugs in people. 
I believe that we had a power to heal. I've been fascinated by the mind-body connection all these years. So the only field that really made sense to me was either naturopathic or chiropractic. And I chose chiropractic because of a series of events that occurred. And I became a chiropractor. Now I knew when I became a chiropractor that I was going to be teaching. And I knew this was a temporary thing to actually be in practice. I just wanted to do it for the discipline of learning about physiology and learning about the healing arts. Mm -hmm. And I still speak to chiropractors today and health professionals today and still do uh, studies in the healing arts. I've Many researchers help me with that area. But um, I just knew in practice I would be confined sitting in a little cubicle. I needed to, I needed to travel the world. Mm -hmm. I've, I've been a desire to travel most of my life, so mm -hmm. you know I can't sit still. Mm -hmm. My mom told me that when I was a kid. I yeah. think that's true. And you also live on the on the ship called the World, I believe. I I've been living for seventeen plus years on a ship called the World. It's a condominium ship that goes up to every country around the world, and um, so that makes sense for me as far as a home. So if I'm not traveling and flying, I'm traveling by sailing. Mm -hmm. But I. I just feel that that's the universe is my playground, the world is my home, every country is a room in the house, and every city is a platform to share my heart and soul. That's amazing. So I travel, research, write, travel, teach. That's my, my thing. I love it. I'm pretty well useless everywhere else. Right. So I haven't driven in 29 and a half years. I don't cook. I'm, I'm useless domestically. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm just, I, all I'm great at is research, write, travel, teach. Yeah. Everything else is, forget it. Wow. An inspired life, huh? Well, for me it is. Yeah. Somebody else would look at that and go, I wouldn't want that. But um, for me, that's been my dream. That's I structured my life. I prioritized my life. I delegated everything so I could do what I love doing. Mm, mm. And that's it. So I, every day I research, write, travel, teach. Love it. And so as, as people are kind of watching this, I, I want to try and be their mind and, and kind of like, you know, and question things. So when you say... Um, you know, I travel, I teach, I write, you know, these are, it's all I do, I'm useless in all other areas, so to speak. Um, when people say, oh yeah, but that's not, you know, realistic, I still have to put the bins out, I still have to cook, I've got a family, all these kind of things. Um, that's what I originally kind of thought of as well when I kind of came across your work. I was just so far in a different paradigm in, in, in consciousness. Saying, so, you know, how can you wake up with such a, um, you, you know, your vocation being your vacation? I was like, if that came in a pool form or whatever, like, you know, if, how, how do you get that? Because just like, I just, as soon as I got that for my, an insight for my own life, I was like, man, everyone needs to know about this. And that's why I'm so passionate about your teachings. So um, I've been really he heavily into personal development in the last uh, three, four years into almost, at least mainstream, every, every uh, mainstream speaker and teacher uh, I can think of. But yours is the one that I've only come across that has a clear, methodical, proven, uh, replicable process every single time to get the result which in I've done a lot of research and yours the only one that I came across and that's when I just fell in love like man take John's work use John's work and and help so many people so that kind of leads me to the question of I was watching your um, uh, seminar online the other day I, th I think you it must have been nearly 20 years ago um, personifying the quantum collapse I'm sure you can't I'm sure you remember that and uh, you made a statement in there apologies if I'm don't quote you 100%, but talking about the quantum quantum collapse process and being possibly the uh, greatest discovery that human uh, mankind had ever come across. So one thing is, if you still believe that to be true, which I'm sure it is, 
Do you mind explaining why you believe that is the greatest discovery human mankind has kind of ever come across? Well, I know for me it's been the greatest discovery. Um, I can imagine it being the great discovery for, for the world because what I found out, many researchers or philosophers or teachers or thinkers through the ages have discussed pairs of opposites. Heraclitus, Greek philosopher, pre-Socratic Greek philosopher, late fifth century, talked about pairs of opposites. Parmenides talked about pair of opposites. Aristotle, Plato, I mean, all the great minds throughout the ages, Jung and um, Freud, I mean, they all, all the way down the line. But what I, what most people have talked about is uh, a conscious and unconscious split. They say, well, over here is a positive thing and over here is a negative thing. Mm-hmm. Or something supportive or challenging or easy or difficult. They deal with pairs of opposites. What I discovered is that the human mind at any moment um, may be conscious of one side, but intuitively has access to an unconscious opposite side that synchronously equilibrates and balances that experience. Even in cases where people are having traumatic experiences, their mind will dissociate from the trauma and create an ecstatic experience simultaneously with the trauma to balance the mind at that moment. But most people are only conscious of the other and run a story about how they've been victimized and not ask the question to see where the other side is. So what I did is I went through, you know, with my, my students and my facilitators and everything else, probably a million cases now, with everybody working on it, mm-hmm. um, where we actually take a moment to go into uh, a, an event that you perceive, or a person you perceive, or some experience, and itemize what you're perceiving consciously, and then look and become very present in that moment and your intuition will pop out the other side where the unconscious is. They've recently discovered in Neuron Magazine um, 2016 about what they call anti-memories, balancing out memories. And I really believe that this is going on and it's been demonstrated. We're doing research right now at Keio University in Japan on this topic. And it's, it's very fascinating because if it is um, discovered by mainstream people, it will probably revolutionize morality, revolutionized psychology, sociology, philosophy, religions of the world. It has a major impact if people really grasp the significance of it. Mm. So there's nothing but a synthesis and synchronicity of compromise opposites at any moment. But because we evaluate things with our values and judge things and filter with our pulmonar region of our nucleus of our thalamus, we, we filter our reality and see only what we want to see, you might say. And we filter out the, un- the other part that's unconscious. But if you put the two together, there's a balancing act going on. And so the great discovery is the realization that all events are neutral until somebody filters them into a polarization and labels them one way or the other. And the mind, therefore, separates the inseparable, divides the indivisible, labels the unlabelable, names the inevitable, and polarizes the unpolarizable, and divides the indivisible. And, and they're entangled, in quantum theory, it's they're entangled opposites in nature. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's going on in the human mind. And, and um, it's not really esoteric. It's very reproducible. I mean, I deal with it every day. I just got through doing a training in Tokyo just a couple of days ago. And we spent, we probably, between the group of 60 people, we probably did a thousand examples um, in that one day. Well, within a few hours, actually, 
a thousand examples of these pairs of opposites and made everybody stop and go, well, if this is, if this is true, that means there is nothing but love mm -hmm. and all else was an illusion. Mm -hmm. And we, we go through and we, because we see something positive without negative or negative without positive, we seek or avoid and we get caught in this passionate frenzy of pursuing that which is unavailable and trying to avoid that which is unavoidable, like dividing a magnet, trying to get a one-sided magnet. Mm -hmm. But when you actually see that there's, there are pairs of opposites and they're there, um, at every moment in the mind, that's a major discovery. Mm -hmm. And I found a way of demonstrating it re reproducibly, how to get access to the unconscious instead of just maybe hoping it's going to surface, mm -hmm. but how to actually methodically access it and demonstrate it over and over again to the most advanced skeptics. They go, well, no, I don't believe that. I, I sat with a physicist who said, no, there's no way that's possible. That would imply some sort of teleological consciousness in the universe. And I said, well, you can conclude that. That may be so, mm. but all I know is that let's do it. And the first time he did one, he goes, well, wait a minute, that's, that's just a random event. Let's do it again. I had him do 14 in a row, and he goes, now, I can't argue with my own experience. I'm going to have to play with this. I said, well, why don't you spend the night going through some moments and actually see how this is? And he came back the next morning and says, you got my attention now. So here's a very strong skeptic mm. that believed that that's not possible, that was shut up by, or tried to shut me up by saying that there's a, in his paradigm, that's not possible. Mm. But I'm offering a new paradigm. There is an, a higher ordered system in, parent, uh, in the apparent chaos that people live by. Mm. And, and the discovery of how to access that and see that, to bring poise to the body and mind, and to awaken people to an awe state, to me is uh, my hope to be a contribution, because I think when people experience it, they're quieted, they're poised, they're, they're brought to tears. Mm -hmm. And they go, so what you're saying um, is there's nothing out of order after all. It was our misinterpretation of what was there. I said, yeah, there's an impicate hidden order sitting there. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is very inspiring when you really actually practice it yeah. and get it. Yeah. And, and so I figure I'll just keep sharing it. Yeah. And slowly but surely, a handful, and then a bigger handful, and a bigger handful, and then some researchers, and then different organizations. Just yeah. it's, it's finally getting some traction. Yeah. And this, and this is one thing that I was talking to Mike about as well. Um, a lot of people that, that are in mainstream and let's just say the personal development space, it's not that they came from a marketing background, but a lot of them did come from a sales marketing kind of situation and they delved deep into personal development. And I always wondered why, uh, you know, I've had a few of my clients, uh, I'm currently a personal trainer in, in the health and wellness setting, and uh, sharing your works and, you know, they're getting your book, the Value Factor book, and they're like, you know, how, how have I not heard of this stuff earlier, right? I mean, you're on the secret. And um, when I came across as well, I was thinking how, uh, I won't name names, but you know, how all these other people got all these, uh, not that I mean to compare anything, but it just seemed much bigger as far as the name out there compared to yours, um, it just blows my mind. So it's just like, if I can be one little uh, blip of hope as far as sharing your work as well, I mean, the whole world in my opinion needs to know about it. Well, there's an old proverb that basically says by the time uh, truth puts on its shoes. Fantasies have spread across the world, walked across the world. So the truth has never been in the hands of the masses. It's always been in the hearts of the masters. And today, even though we have access with social media to disseminate information, that doesn't mean that people are interested in what's true. They want what stimulates dopamine in the brain. Mm -hmm. People will, will search for a fantasy. Mm -hmm. if, if 
I, I use the analogy, a little kind of a game analogy. Imagine you're in front of a, you've got a thousand people in a room, and there's a guy on stage saying, for $49.95, you can become a billionaire in one week. And, and here's how you do it. It's a simple six-step process. If you go to the back, buy it for $49, you'll be a billionaire within a week. Well, a thousand people, just average people on the street, uh, believe it or not, are more gullible and will probably go run and buy that $49 thing. Mm-hmm. Thinking that, oh, because I, I, anything that would make it easier, anything that make it quicker, anything that for immediate gratification will stimulate dopamine, make my life easier, and they could sell a fantasy to people very quickly. Mm-hmm. Now, if Warren Buffett was sitting in that thousand people, he'd probably get up and walk out of the back of the room and said, this is ridiculous, because he's more intelligent. So somebody with a more intelligence would see past the illusion that you'd have immediate gratification and quick fix. But a dopamine fix is what people want. They want a high. They don't want the, the harsh reality that it takes. Mm-hmm. I mean, 99% of the people say they want to be financially independent, but less than 1% obtain it. Mm-hmm. So what people fantasize about, what people are stimulated by, is not necessarily what's true. Even in, in uh, chemistry, you know, when, you, when you're in elementary school, you look up on the front of the room, you see a series of images, a little ball called hydrogen all the way to uranium. Mm-hmm. And you'll see across the front of the class, above the blackboard, you see all these little pictures of balls, bigger, 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 to get to uranium. And you'll think in elementary school that an atom is a ball. And then you go to high school and you find out it's got protons, electrons, and neutrons, and it looks like a little orbital solar system, the Bohr model. Mm-hmm. And then you think, oh, that's what it is. It's not exactly a ball. It sort of has orbits, and then they're in shells, Mm -hmm. and that whole Bohr model comes about. And then you go to college and you find out, no, it's a probability distribution of complex mathematical abstract numbers. And it's not even, it's imaginary numbers, which is a square root of negative one behind these things. And, and And it's very abstract, and it's not even tangible. And we really don't know ultimately what that is. And we go into professorship, we realize that that's got flaws, that theory. It's the best we got. So we had to teach the illusion until people are ready for truth. Mm. And people are more interested in the illusion than they are in the real truth because the truth has accountability to it. Yeah. And the, the illusion has a, an impulse, a media gratification to it. Yeah. So I'm probably not as popular because I'm telling people you know, more factual information. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not always the... A textbook is not as popular as a best-selling uh, fantasy book. Yeah, yeah. So... But I don't care. Uh, my, my mission isn't just to become, you know, known quickly. My mission is to build a foundation of knowledge that'll stand the test of time. Mm-hmm. And slowly but surely, it's building momentum. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. And that, that was a perfect transition. Um, and I've used that with my clients before when you have said, um, teach the illusion until they're ready for the truth. And I can't quite remember whether that was quoted from Buddha or... Well, the Buddha, there's a, there's a quote. I mean, who knows what the Buddha really said? Right. There's lots of Buddhist sects yeah. today. Yeah. And there's many different writings that have been syncretized to time yeah. that's possibly the Buddha yeah. teaching. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Um, I, I read another book on Buddhism on the flight coming back from, somebody gave it to me in Japan. And, um, you know, I've read many, many books. And I've written a textbook on it. And I, and I found that, uh, you know, another sect of Buddhism promulgating their their particular version of it. I can't say what that's what the Buddha said at all. Yeah, Who yeah, knows? right, right. Part of its mythology anyway. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And uh, But where I was taking that, that transition was, or segue was, um, you know, a lot of my clients will come in and, you know, want this quick weight loss, this quick drop in the fat, right? And Did you tell them that you can uh, 
strap them behind on a big rubber strap with a hook to their belt yeah. and, and run behind a 747. By the time they land at the next country, yeah. uh, they'll probably have a weight loss. Yeah, that's exactly what I say. <laughs> they'll go down to Mexico and drink the water, yeah. a gallon of the water yeah. directly from the yeah. tap. Just get sick. And and probably lose weight very quickly. Exactly. Montezuma's diet. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and then I went on to the ones that were at least had this awareness of consciousness. I said, uh, I'd stated that quote. And now I've kind of realized that when people come in, I have to take them through a journey of, they think that the diet and the exercise plan, yes, it yields a result, it can't help but not, but it's really, now I've learned, um, I have to take them through this illusion until they're open to at least learning around values that we can say, cool, well, would you like me to show you how to bring your values, health and wellness up, or connect the goal of weight loss to your highest values, right? Because there's exactly. they're doing it. And uh, for me, it, it feels like you know you're looking through the mountain. You've you've found the vein of gold, and you're working the vein of gold because it's like, wow, like this is like this is guaranteed to work. Let me show you, kind of thing. So well, um, my experience with weight concerns is no one will continue to do something unless they get more advantage and disadvantage out of it, consciously or unconsciously. I'll, I'll give an example. I was working it for uh, well. I was at Universal Studios area, and I was doing a reality TV show a number of years ago. And they gave me a lady that, they, they said that you have two hours to change your life. I had 12 people, two hours each, in 24 hours to change their life. It's a very intense schedule. Mm. And uh, this lady was, came in with a box of, of food. It's more food than I would probably eat in a week. And she brought it in. She said, I brought everybody some food. Nobody ate it. She ate it all. And she says, you got to help me. i got to get rid of weight, man. i got to do it. you got to help me. you got to help me. And I said to her, the very first thing I said, um, you know, when I listen to people say things and I see them do other things, I don't pay attention to what they say. I pay attention to what they do. And what I see you doing is, you know, chomping on a lot of food. So that means that you must have more advantage and disadvantage out of eating in your mind than disadvantage, or you wouldn't be doing it. No one's going to go against them that way unless there's... Uh, unconscious motives here. Mm -hmm. So I said, so what's the benefit you get out of keeping weight on and eating as much as you do? And she said, well, there isn't. There's no benefit. Look at me. It's causing this. And then I said, no, I, I, stop. I'm not interested in what you're saying right now there. What's the real benefit? Mm -hmm. And we dug beyond her, her doubts for a second. And all of a sudden she says, everyone in my family is large. And I don't feel like I'm part of my family without being big. Oh. Okay. And she got a little watery-eyed. I said, what else? My sister used to push me around as a kid, and I made a commitment to myself. I would never be smaller than my sister. And she's a big woman. Okay, good. What's another one? And she said this one, and this is the big one. She says, one time I went on a radical diet, and I lost 45 pounds, and I started to have a bit of a shape. And it's the first time a man actually came on to me and showed affection to me. I misread it. I thought he really loved me. And the very first time we went out, I made love with him. And then I found out he never called me back. And six weeks later, I found out I was pregnant. And then I was confronted as a Spanish Latin Catholic. Uh, do I keep the baby or do I not? And now I'm in guilt both ways. So I ended up having an abortion and I felt guilty about it. And so I unconsciously, I think, made sure I would never be put in that situation again because the last time I lost weight, that's what happened. Mm -hmm. And that was very painful. And then she says, I also, when I start to lose weight, I start to sag. My skin gets weak. And people always comment about my skin looks because it's always stretched. 
And we went through and found literally 150 benefits. About 19 of them brought tears to her eyes, big tears. Mm. And then she came to the realization that she's got way more benefits than drawbacks of why she's keeping the weight on. Mm. Until we can come up with viable alternative ways to get those same benefits met without having to eat and keep weight on Mm -hmm. and link that to her highest values and then help her go back and to find something that's meaningful, which allows the executive center to overrule the amygdala, which is where our desire centers for consumption and eating is, we're likely to continue that pattern. Mm -hmm. And so we helped her transform some of that within a two hour period. It was an awareness for her. But most people are having unconscious motives. Mm -hmm. And as long as they do, until they become aware of those, they're going to keep banging their head against the wall. Just like people say, I want to become financially independent, but then I, I sat, there's a gentleman sitting on this couch last night I was consulting with. Mm-hmm. He says, no matter what I do, I can't get ahead financially. And then I, we looked at exactly how his money was being spent. Mm-hmm. And he realized that he was spending it on what was he, he was valuing most. And he didn't have a value on wealth building. Mm-hmm. He didn't have a value on saving and investing money. Mm-hmm. He'd never read on that. Mm-hmm. But wherever he was valuable to him, he was just pouring money into it. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you will not be wealthy financially until you have a higher value on saving and investing and buying assets that accumulate and appreciate in value over the things that you keep consuming that go down in value. Your, your, your values are going to dictate your financial destiny. Mm-hmm. So we say things, but I'm not interested in what people say, I'm interested in what they live. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And uh, there was a, another great point of um, when I heard that, because sometimes you need to hear something for the third and the fourth time for the penny to drop, so to speak. And uh, because my highest values were at the time when I realized this was personal development, travel, uh, and, and health and wellness. And so where was all my money going when it was coming in? It was courses, Personal development courses, Perfect, health right? and fitness, and travel. Exactly. So when I finally got there, and I'm like, right, I'm really going to go through this exercise of your six questions, 200, 200, you know. Um, lo and behold, wealth building came up. I have savings now. Um, so for people, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to, or not targets for kind of the right word, but people that are coming into it and kind of watching this that have a very, um, well, just a lower consciousness and awareness, right? Some people don't understand what paradigm is. They don't understand what even your hormones are, like just very base, right? But they have a desire to change, right? What's the first place to start with? So um, is it... Okay, first we educate them around the values and then it shifts or is that the first place someone starts when they've got a very low sense of um, conscious awareness? Well, every human being at any one moment is living according to what their values are. They're just not always conscious of it. They each have a set of values or priorities, a hierarchy of values that they're living their life by. Their perception, decisions or actions are all based on it. In fact, every decision they make is based on what they believe at that moment will give more advantage and disadvantage, or they wouldn't have done it. Mm-hmm. Regardless of what they say, they wouldn't have done it if it wasn't unconsciously more advantage and disadvantage. So making them aware of what they value, I think, is a good starting point, smart starting point. That's why I have the value applications, value determination process on my website for free people. because I know it makes a difference in their life. The second thing is to structure their life, begin to structure their life by priority. Because if you don't fill your day with high-priority actions and inspire you, it's going to keep filling up with low-priority distractions that don't. And whenever you do, and whenever you compare yourself to other people and think they have something you don't, you're too humble to admit what you see in them is inside you. 
you'll beat yourself up, self-depreciate, try to live in their values and try to envy them and try to imitate them and lose yourself mm -hmm. and cloud the clarity of what's really important to you. Mm -hmm. And that devalues you. And then you start thinking, well, I don't want to set goals that never come true. Because you're setting not your goals, you're setting other people's goals. Mm -hmm. And you're conforming and fitting in instead of standing out. You're living in shadows instead of standing on shoulders. Mm -hmm. So first identify what's really valuable to you. And then start structuring lives that way. Because many people say, oh, I want to change my life, only because they're comparing themselves to other people. And they think, oh, they have a better life. If they actually sat in the other person's shoes, they may not find it's a better life. It's just a different life. Mm -hmm. But they fantasize about that. And then they beat themselves up thinking there's something wrong with their life. Many people think that they're not successful because they're comparing themselves to somebody that's successful in another area. So, as I think Einstein said, if you're a cat and you're, you know, beating yourself up because you can't swim, or if you're a fish and you're beating yourself up because you can't climb, mm -hmm. well, you deserve to beat yourself up. You're beating yourself up as a feedback to let you know you're you're pursuing something that's not you. Mm -hmm. You're a cat. You're a fish. You're not here to to swim or cat to mm -hmm. to climb. Mm -hmm. So finding out what's really valuable and structuring your life accordingly in a way that whatever is valuable to you, you find a way of getting paid to do it. Because if you're not doing what you really love to do on a daily basis, you have a Monday morning blues, Wednesday hump days, thank God it's Fridays and week friggin' ends. And you're gonna work over here to make money, to escape it and go blow it over here somewhere. Mm -hmm. To then have to go back to work. Mm -hmm. And you're in a rat race cycle, conforming into quiet life of desperation. But if you actually define what's really important to you and prioritize what's the highest priority thing you can do with that, and how can you serve people with that in a way that's a fair exchange, that's sustainable, that can earn an income? Now you can't wait to get up in the morning and be of service to people. I sat on this couch with I sat with this gentleman on the couch last night, and we laid out, we did his values, mm -hmm. we laid out a structure. He's literally brought to tears on what he saw for himself. His executive center came online, he saw a vision of what he could do. It's the most inspired he's been because we just got him to be true to himself. Mm -hmm. and. The magnificence of yourself is far greater than any fantasies you'll impose on yourself. Because what he was doing every day was this and this and this, but he was trying to go and do something that wasn't matching what he spontaneously was doing. And once we structured it and showed him a way where he could make great money doing it, he's like going, man, that would be a dream come true. I said, that is totally manageable. And if you prioritize your life and we laid out priorities for him, it's doable. When he left here, all he wanted to do is work on that now. Because mm. you spontaneously can't wait to get up in the morning and be of service doing what it is you love. And if you do it in a way that serves people, you have an income and then you can use that income to save and also delegate the things you don't want to do that's low in priority. Because mm -hmm. as long as you do low priority things, you're going to devalue yourself. Mm -hmm. You have to find out what your priorities are and what your values are if you want to structure life and have an inspired life. Fantastic. And there's um, an area that I wanted to quickly delve into, which was, say you've got your values and again, I picked this up from one of your workshops a long time ago uh, online. And there's an example or a setting of a, a woman that had this dream or this goal of um, wanting to help kids out on her ranch. And then you went through and discovered that, uh, and I think she wanted to offer it for free. And because she had all these, you know, her ho uh, horse had died at a certain age or, do you remember that story? Yeah. yeah. So would you mind just kind of... You want to do that story? Yeah, go through that and then kind of, how do we know if we've chosen the right one and do, does it need to be unpackaged to discover, oh, it wasn't actually this, it was this? Okay. Yeah. Well, first of all, that, that lady was in Melbourne, Australia. Right. And it's 15 years ago, I guess. And what she did is she was attending the Breakthrough Experience, which is the signature program I've done 1,055 times. And 
she was on Sunday, the second day of the program, she put her hand up and she says, I'm writing out my mission and I would love for you to read it. And I said, well, if you want me to read it, it means you're not certain about it. You're looking for some sort of authoritative authorization of what you're doing. So read it. So when she read out loud, I said, is this something that you want to do that's a commercial endeavor or is it an altruistic endeavor? She says, well, it's sort of, I just like taking care of animals and it's altruistic. I said, anytime you see altruism, you usually see compensations for shame and guilt of the past. Mm-hmm. So define what it is you want to do. So, well, I want to help animals. We have a ranch and we want to help animals that have been infirmed and hurt and injured. We want to repair them and help them get back instead of being shot or killed or whatever. And I said, this is an altruistic endeavor. It's, you're not going to do it for economics. Nobody's going to pay for it. She says, no. I found out her husband was sitting next to her and he's just kind of quiet because he's kind of, here we go again, going to do this giveaway. And I said, um, just out of curiosity, when you think of it, what animals come to your mind? What's the first animal that comes to your mind? She says, well, horses. I said, well, okay, where in your life did you feel you uh, did something to a horse that you felt was painful to the horse and you feel guilty about it? And she, right on the spot, she started crying and getting teary-eyed. And she said, when I was, you know, four years old, I was riding my horse and something was in these rolling hills and something spooked it and it took off running and it buckled its leg and we ended up having to shoot it. And I felt that if I hadn't run the horse, the horse would have lived. And we couldn't keep the horse after that. We had to shoot it. Mm. And she felt guilt. And she was still carrying guilt 39 years later or 34 years later. Probably. Wow. She's 39, 34 years later. And I said, well, as long as you have guilt and shame in the past, you're going to, to try to compensate for it. You're going to do things to make you feel good, to feel better about yourself because you're beating yourself up. Mm-hmm. I said, so let me do a little exercise. And I pulled her off the side and I did the Demartini method, which is a series of questions that help dissolve, you know, things like guilt and shame and pride and things like that, anything that's not centered. Mm-hmm. And we did this process. It took about 20 minutes. When I got through and dissolved her guilt, I said, tell me about this, this idea about the horses and the animals. And she looked and she couldn't find it in her mind. It just vanished. And I said, what you did is you were compensating for shame and guilt of the past and trying to feel good about yourself, trying to rescue things because of the big guilt. And she goes, wow. I said, what now is popping in your head? I said, well, what's coming up now is it'd be great to use the, maybe the land for helping young teenagers and runaways and people that have no homes and things like that and rescue them. I said, is this another giveaway, another freebie? And she said, I guess it is. I said, well, close your eyes and what do you see? Do you see men or women, both? And what age group do you see? And she said, well, I, what popped in my head was a girl. I said, what age group? She says, teenagers, young teens, maybe 13, 14, or 15. I said, what happened to you around age 14? And she looked at me and she goes, and her husband looked at her and goes, and I said, uh, what happened? She said, at 14, my father left us. And my mom had to do two jobs. And we only had one car and we lived in this country. And I wanted to see my friends and I was giving her hell. I mean, it was just, it was the most traumatic period of my life. And I wanted to run away and sometimes I wanted to kill myself. And it was just, it was just a terrible period in my life. And I said, and you felt guilty because you, you, you challenged your mom so much? Yeah. She started crying again. I said, this shame and guilt that you're having and this pain you're doing, you're escaping and you're trying to rescue and make it easier on other people to compensate for that. I said, let's go do the method again. So I pulled her over there and I took another 20, 30 minutes and I did a little method on dissolving her, her, her experience. Any of the, the experience there that wasn't balanced in the mind, I brought it to balance. Mm-hmm. Just like the great discovery I was telling you about. And when it was done, she's going, 
I wouldn't change a thing about it now. And I said, no, now tell me about this, this goal. And she goes, it's gone, it's vanished. Mm. I said, well, the mind is compensating because anything that's a pain, your body's going to try to avoid and create a, a fantasy to go after. And anything that's a pleasure, it's going to peak that fantasy. I said, so what you're doing is you're trying to compensate for these shame and guilt moments. And I said, now that those are clear, what's coming to your mind? And she looked and she goes, well, right now what's coming to my mind is, I'm amazed, I didn't know this, I'm amazed that I'm running my life by these unconscious motives that I completely was unaware of. And what would be nice is to be able to maybe use the land for some sort of educational retreat where people can learn about this and learn to dissolve or work through those so they're setting goals that are meaningful and productive and profitable. I said, right now when you think about doing this this uh, retreat center or whatever you're now doing, is that so something for free again? And she says, no, this is valuable. Uh, you know, it'd be nice to have this as a thing. And now her husband says, now I'm interested because you're always giving away stuff and doing it for free and devaluing yourself. Well, now we've cleared some of the shame and guilt. Now she's doing it because she would love to that would make a difference in a fair exchange. Mm. Where if she was compensating for shame and guilt, we end up with altruistic giveaways. And I explained to her that when she saw it, the whole room got it. The whole room realized that, my God, I'm probably running my life out of these unconscious motives without realizing. That's why I tell people to come to the breakthrough experience, to learn the methods and dissolving them. Mm -hmm. So you're able to run your life out of inspiration instead of compensation. Mm -hmm. Well, that was now the path that she was going to take because she thought, oh, we could turn it, we could make little bungalows, we could actually rent them out, we could have a retreat center. We could, and now it's a, a, a viable, sustainable, economically viable, fair exchange system that she's now pursuing. So as long as we're feeling shame and guilt to the past or super pride and narcissism, we tend to, you know, overvalue or undervalue ourselves, and we're trying to compensate for that instead of just be ourselves. Mm -hmm. and, and we don't maximize our potential until we're really our true self mm -hmm. and living congruently with who we really are and not compensating. It's mm -hmm. amazing. And there's one story that always stuck with me, so I'm, I'm glad you managed to share it. Okay, so I, I instantly think of my dad when it comes to this question. Love my dad. Uh, it's done a lot for me in my life. Um, and he's got a successful business. And when it comes to people that have um, SMEs, you know, that size of business, and they're struggling with employee engagement, I find this very fascinating when I look into your work. What, what does a company do, or like what's, what's, hap what's really happening under the hood of a business when there's a really low level of employee engagement? Well, there was a study in Japan um, talking about employee engagement and the ratios and percentages at different levels of different types of companies. It's an interesting study. But nobody goes to work for the sake of a company. And I say that to companies and they, they look at me, what? Mm. I said, nobody goes to work for the sake of a company. They go to work to fulfill what they value most in their life. Mm -hmm. So if a person is a mother and has three beautiful children and she's doing a job, uh, she's going there to make sure she can pay for her children and take care of her children and make sure they get an education and clothes and health and everything else. So her primary objective of going there is to make sure that those kids are taken care of. Where another person has a social cause, they want to go there because they want to socially network and, and become known and respected in the social circles. Others because they really love that work and this is their love, this is the pursuit. They, this, they want to take over the company or they want to take over that position or they want to take and master that skill and start their own company. Mm -hmm. But the hierarchy of the values determines what they're using that, that business for. And whatever that is, that's where they're going to be spontaneously inspired to act. 
that's where McGregor in the 60s called it the theory why people that are self-driven. If a person can't see how the job duties, responsibilities, and actions that they take every day is helping them fulfill what they value most, they're not engaged. But once they see it, they get amazingly engaged. I can take a person who's not productive and, and turn them into productivity by asking a simple question. How specifically is doing this job duty helping you fulfill what's truly most important to you? But first we gotta get down to what's really most important. Not what they say, but what their life demonstrates. Because their life demonstrates their values. So find out what's really spontaneously inspiring to them to do inside and find out how that particular job duty is helping you do it. And you make links, and I say a minimum of 25 links. That means how specifically is this action at work helping you fulfill what you really value? And if they make those links and keep making those links, at first they go, it isn't. It's no benefit to it. I just have to do it. Well, as long as you're doing it from that perspective, you're going to have to do it. And nobody's going to go to work being engaged with have to's. You're going to go when they go, I'd love to do that. It's Mm -hmm. inspiring to me. Mm -hmm. Nobody has to remind me to get up and do my research and teaching. Exactly. So, but once those links are made, I can take the whole job description and sit down and make all the links. And once those links are made, now they're actually inspired to go do those activities. Mm. And they're more likely to excel at it. Because we spontaneously want to learn what's really valuable to us. So if we see things on the way, not in the way, and helping us get what we want, we fully engage and get participant in the, in the career. Mm-hmm. We've taken it to companies. We've taken it to educational systems. We've taken it to individuals. We've taken it to sports personalities. It's a very powerful tool that, that helps people engage. Mm-hmm. And companies, when they see it, are like going, duh. You can lead by values. You can manage by values. You can negotiate by values. You can sell by values. You can hire by values. And you can inspire by values. Mm-hmm. But if you don't know what the values are, you're probably going to be an autocrat pushing people uphill. Yeah. And the key is to find somebody that's more masterful at what you want to delegate that they can't wait to get up and do it, so you're free, so you can go do what you would love to do mm-hmm. and let them do what they love to do. Mm-hmm. But many people hire people that are yes people instead of people that are inspired. Yeah, and it's my, uh, that would be the holy grail, I can imagine, when it comes to engagement and companies going. <laughs> well, <laughs> the thing is, is it, it, it's, it's actually a science. Mm. It's actually duplicatable. The companies, we have many companies in Japan now, I just found out a couple more this week um, that are using it. I think AI company there, um, is using it now, one of the leading ones. I've seen it now. We just recently did it in, in Trinidad. I went down and spoke to government people. They're now going corporate in the government there. It works if you work it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a skill. You have to train. You're not accustomed to it. You have to master the skill. It's caring enough about another human being mm-hmm. to allocate job responsibilities and uh, delegations in terms of people's values. And when they do, then it's, they, they feel that they want to do it because it's helping them get what they want. Mm-hmm. And it's caring enough about people to help them get what they want so they give, help you get what you want. Yeah. That's the, the science behind it. Yeah. And the way that people can go through that process, because uh, I believe you, you delivered th- this uh, seminar to a hospital and a lot of the head of staff went and got the Values Factor book. Um, so would that be one way? Facilitators another way? The Breakthrough Experience is another way? Have you got any other resources books or online learnings and just is relating to just um, engaging employees? Yes. Um, if you go on my online, my website, the online programs, there's one specific on the value applications and there's a whole section on that. And there's ones on leadership, there's ones on uh, engagement, there's ones on 
um, how to learn more effectively with values, how to communicate in values, how to develop relationships with values, hiring and inspiring by values. If they go online and just look under value applications or just look at all the online programs, you'll, mm -hmm. you'll see it. Okay. And the Values Factor book is a great start, as you know. Yeah. But um, I rarely, if I, I mean, I do 300 plus speeches every year, and I rarely do a speech that doesn't incorporate value applications. Yeah. Because it's the foundation of all drive of human beings. Yeah. I'll expect it tomorrow. <laughs> I, you will get it tomorrow. Um, and because uh, th this one little story uh, is definitely quantifiable with this engagement process. So you did this um, speak, well, again, delivered this, these teaching seminar in, apologies, I can't remember the name, but in, in a rural African city centre. And it was with a school, and their pass rate was something like, it was really low, 27%. Do you mind kind of just sharing that little story? Well, what happened is um, there's a gentleman um, that is the one of the heads of the Board of Education in South Africa, and um, Raymond Martin, and he asked me to um, address some schools, well, first some principals, and then some schools, teachers, and then schools. So I got to do all so the principals, I think I spoke to 200 principals, and then a series of about 200 teachers, 200 teachers, 200 teachers, and then 800 to 1,000 kids at a time. And we went into the Alexandra Tan Township, which is just outside of the Sandton, Joburg area. And, you know, there's a lot of people that live there. They're in shacks. It's, a, it's sort of a township. It's, it's a, not the wealthiest area. Mm -hmm. And um, we went to a school there, and... We taught the, well, we had the, the principal had come to the program, so he already had it. We then sat and showed the teachers how to apply it. We identified what their values were. We took the curriculum they were teaching and linked each of the classes to their values so they're more engaged in teaching, because that's a big part of it. Mm -hmm. If a, a teacher's not inspired to teach something, don't put them there, teach kids. Then what we did is we took the kids and we, linked, we found their values, and then we linked the classes to their values. And then finally, we took the teachers' values and linked the values of the teachers to the students, the students to the teachers. And we did four sessions of about four hours each. That's it. And the pass rate went from 27% to 97% rate of matric. Wow. And what it was is the kids deserve to know why they're taking the class they're taking. Let's say the kid is a, wants to be a skateboard expert or wants to do video games or wants to do this. And they see the classes are taken and they go, how am I going to become a great video guy with that. Mm. That's like the archaic dark ages. That's how they think. So they don't see a relation. I guarantee you, when a child's having difficulty in class and you ask them how is this class going to help them do what they want to do in life, mm -hmm. they're going to go, it ain't, man. They can't see a correlation, so they're not going to want to engage in it. They're going to dissociate from it. But if I sit down and I, I make the links, which is what we did, we spent four hours making links between every one of their classes and their what they wanted. And all of a sudden now they see that they're going to, the, the classes are on the way. They're not in the way. Mm. They're helping them get what they want. Once they do, they're fully engaged. Kids don't have a problem learning. Mm. They just want to learn what's important to them. Mm. They learn how to do video games and masterful. They learn how to do telephone, that little cell phones. They learn how to do yeah. online stuff. They, yeah. Anything that's important to them, they have no problem. They just got to see it's important to them. And the way it make it important, the, re, the word important means that which they want to import into their awareness. And if they can't see how it's going to help them fulfill what's meaningful to them, they don't want to import it. They mm. want to export it. Mm. And so showing them how to do that was all we did and making them do it. Mm. We just had some fun doing it. And, and I said, how many of you would like to be able to go to, you're going to go to class anyway. How many would make it 
would like to be able to go to class and literally have an easier time in class and absorb information, retain information, be able to use that information. Every hand went up. Mm. I said, well, let's show you how to do that. Mm. And we started to have them link. Mm. And then they end up having a reason to go to school. It's amazing, isn't it? It is, because we've, I've done that in hundreds of schools now, and, and uh, it's quite amazing. And I, I went, I did it to another um, less uh, economically viable school in, in Texas, actually, and 900 students. It was interesting, the teachers didn't show up for the class that I did. I went to the auditorium and spoke, and the kids came. And I think, well, there's, that goes to show you the teachers aren't even engaged in learning. Yeah. So what happens is that the, the students went back to the classes, and they really got firm with the teachers and said, we want to know how our class is going to help us fulfill what we want. We just learned that from Dr. Martini. Can we have a session right now and explain how this class is going to help me? And the teacher's like going, okay. <laughs> and the teacher was stretched because they all wrote their values down in the class we did. Mm. So they went back and said, here's my class. Here's what I'm dedicated to. Here's what I'm inspired by. Mm. How is this class going to help me? Yeah. And they worked with the teacher, you know, literally working on that for that week. How is this going to help them do it? Mm-hmm. Now they're engaged in school. Mm-hmm. The dropout rate, the drug rate, the obesity rate, because anytime we're not feeling engaged and inspired by what we're doing, our amygdala comes online for the immediate gratification mm-hmm. and consumerism, immediate gratification, pleasure, impulses, sex. I mean, anything that's the dopamine-driven stuff takes over mm-hmm. instead of learning. Jeez, I could sit here all day. And, uh, and again, those, those two things are kind of linked. Um, as far as engagement in schools and learning, most people will know what ADD and ADHD means, and you're the first person I'm uh, a teacher I've come across that talks about well, what about attention surplus order? So, um, because there's still a lot of it's, it's very traditional and traditionally taught, people kids still get uh, diagnosed as ADHD, but you're teaching by saying no, no such thing as ADHD. So, would you mind just kind of touching on why you don't believe ADHD is well? Um, first of all, I I remember seeing a video recently and also noticing a few years ago when they changed the diagnostic codes uh, for psychiatric conditions, they lowered the standards. And there's a bit of a controversy because the pharmaceutical company and the American Psychiatric Association lowered the standards to make sure that every single child by age eight would be on some sort of medication. And there's a big video on it. You can watch it. It's pretty interesting. And um, I watched it and I, and I noticed, and I'm sure... Anybody that's been around long enough will know that the degree of Ritalin use and the degree of medication on kids is skyrocketing. Mm. And so what's happened is this kid who's in class, that's got a disengaged class, not inspiring, doesn't see how it's going to help them get what they want, or bored, they go into the amygdala and they want they get dissociated. But yet they can go home and they can sit in front of video games for six hours straight without being distracted. So how can they can sit just undistracted on their video games or on their social media or whatever without distraction, totally focused. So I, I was aware of this and I saw, well, what's, what's the difference? Why is it over here they've got ADAD and they're labeled and over here they're totally focused? I found out when I was in practice years ago, 30-something years ago, uh, 37 years ago, that, uh, that when the kids would come in running all over the place and running up against the wall and, you know, and I, and I would ask the child something and find out what the child's really inspired by. What does he love doing? I'd ask the mother, what does he love doing? Because the mother's wanting to fix him. The school's wanting to fix him. 
the psychiatrist is trying to fix him. The counselor is trying to fix him, mm-hmm. trying to label him, give him a medication. That's the that's the approach. And I said, what does he love doing? And uh, I got him, found out what it was. And in this particular kid, what he loved was baseball. He loved baseball. Mm-hmm. And I said, so uh, your mom says that you love baseball. Yeah. I said, tell me about baseball. Tell me about your love for baseball. I started talking to him. He stopped running around and everything and got him engaged in the conversation. And, and as long as I was doing the mother was sitting there going, hmm. See, the mother was self-righteously projecting what she thought he needed to be doing onto him and projecting without caring about what his needs are and then engaging him. It's not that you don't want him to do the things in school. You just want to communicate it in a way where he's going to want to go to school. Mm-hmm. So I said, uh, in baseball, uh, you love baseball. Yeah. He said, you started talking about it and tell me who all the baseball players you know and what are you doing? Well, I had him engaged in that. He wasn't running around. He wasn't doing anything. He was just engaged in talking to me. He was very brilliant, incredibly brilliant. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I said, have you ever studied uh, the top baseball players? He goes, you know that some of the names? Yeah. What education level did they reach? How far did they go in school? What classes did they take? And then he, so he, he had a little phone. I said, why don't you pull up the phone and let's see what it is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then, well, that's a more recent one. And so what happens is they go and dig, and I, and I start linking school. I start linking chores, the things that will help them get what they want. Mm -hmm. And once I make a link between what they want Mm -hmm. to the things that are necessary in in life, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden they get engaged Mm -hmm. and their their executive center comes comes online instead of their amygdala. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden they're, because what they're doing when they give them Ritalin, they're giving sort of a norepinephrine analog to give them a, a high sort of thing in order to distract them from their their distractions. Right. And and what by doing this, all of a sudden they're calmed. And I've seen this over and over again. I've watched children that have been labeled and find out what they do. And once they are able to target it, they're now focused. And, they, and the teacher goes, well, what did you do with this kid? And I said, we linked the classes to what was important to him. And he now sees how he can climb mountains by going to class. He goes, well, how's the class going to help him do that? I said, well, that's a good question. If you yeah. really care about your your kids, you're going to want to find out what's important to them, and you're going to, and as that's migrating, you keep current. Mm. I, I see the real world has sales, and the real world has a customer, and the customer's needs are changing. And if you're not caring about the customer to find out what the real values of the customer and real needs of the customer are when you're communicating a product, service, or idea, you don't have sales. Mm-hmm. Well, a teacher is a salesperson selling ideas. Mm-hmm. And if they're not caring about the needs of that child when they're trying to communicate with it, and they're autocratically telling them, you need to study this. This will be important to you. I know better than you. You're not going anywhere. You're just going to have a defiant kid. You're going to put them on a, a drug because of defiance, mm-hmm. ADHD. Mm-hmm. They're going to want to get out of there and escape that place. I had a, a really amazing fun time in Connecticut one time, speaking to 200 educators and, and uh, principals. And there was a lady there in the front row who had her son there, who's 12 years old. <clears throat> and I, she says, well, what do you do when you have a kid that's, Lazy, uh, you know, not wanting to study, distracted, da da da. I said, there is no such thing. The kid's not lazy. He's lazy in what you think is important, but he's not lazy in what he thinks is important. Mm. I said, I turned to him, is this the kid you're talking about? Yeah. And the counselor that labeled him was right next to him. And I said, so what do you love doing? He goes, oh, video games. I said, what kind? He goes, ice hockey. And you like ice hockey? He goes, yep. We started talking about ice hockey. I said, I'm going to do you a favor. Um, you know you know all the names of the ice hockey players? Yep, they rattled them off. He says, you know a, a lot about them? He goes, yep. And I had him stand up 
and I had him do a presentation on ice hockey players in front mm. of 200 educators. Mm. And then I told him at the end, because ice hockey is not their highest value, I'm going to do a pop quiz on them and see how well they listen to the teacher. And I put them through a thing and I said, because ice hockey is not important to you, you're tuning them out. You're distracted. You're fidgeting. You're not seeing the relationship to it. Mm. You're only interested because I'm showing you how to, how to teach today. But the reality is you're not interested in the thing he's interested in. And so when you do, he tunes out. He devalues you, gets defiant. Mm. And I explained it all. And then I linked his interest of ice hockey to mathematics, mm -hmm. which is where he was having problems in school. Mm -hmm. And I did about a 14-minute link. Mm -hmm. And when he's through, he turned to his mom and he says, Mom, can you get me whatever this book is on mathematics to help me become better in ice hockey? Mm -hmm. Once he saw how that class is going to help him, he wanted to study that class. Mm -hmm. So I'm a firm believer that you can link anything Mm -hmm. to, to people and you can help them become more engaged in it. Mm -hmm. I've seen it at work, I've proven it in companies, I've proven it in educational systems, I've seen it in people that are sports people, mm -hmm. singers, I mean it's yeah. got tremendous application. So if you, you can take that same holy grail of engagement with businesses, also apply it to your family with your children, uh, one, uh, objection is probably the wrong word, one thing that kind of popped up in my mind with that situation was if, if I'm getting my, so I have a five-year-old son, if I wanted my son Levi to do something, and I'm talking into his highest values, is that to say that it's kind of like, if you do this, you can then go and read your book, or you can go play your game? Is that not teaching, you do this, you get reward? It's not so much that, you see, there's the, the lowest level of heuristics is punishment-reward systems. So you punish them if they don't do it, you reward them if you do. What you're doing is you're making a link to their highest value where they have the greatest objectivity and greatest balanced perspective. And you don't need to punish them and reward them that way. You're just showing them a link. Mm -hmm. And you're not trying to do it because you're right. You're doing it because they're right. They're right with their values. They're not wrong with their values. People have this idea that these are the values they should have. Well, that's autocratic. And the, the world is made up of a full spectrum of values out there from complete similarities to complete differences antonyms and synonyms, as we could call them. And uh, there's no right value system out there. As much as one, somebody wants to, you know, absolute uh, morality, wants to put this, this is right and this is wrong, there's never been in history, as McIntyre shows, no one in history, in the history of ethics, has ever shown that to be true. Mm -hmm. That's just an arbitrary bias that some authority has made up. Mm -hmm. So everybody's needed. Some people are dedicated to business, some are families, some are social causes, some are sports, some are spirituality, summer, music. Everybody's needed in the game. In fact, the world needs that diversity. So to impose an idea that these are right and yours is wrong is automatically alienating and being autocratic and you're going to get defiance. Mm -hmm. So it's not about saying, well, if you do this, you get a reward if you don't. It's about linking it. So they do it not because they have to, but they do it because they're going to get what they want. Mm -hmm. That's the link. That's the purpose. It's not doing it for you. Yeah. It's doing it for them. Right. Okay, perfect question answers thank you uh I'll, I'll just finish with these last two um one is around what's happening in uh the republic of congo and then the other one is um say you've got okay we've got now two people that have expanded paradigms um and uh, consciousness on the same level and they're both living to their values if i then let's go uh talk to my partner into her values and she's let's just say she's in a mood and she goes you know stop trying to manipulate me right so if I'm talking to someone in their values, a, a partner, and they're conscious of that I'm trying to talk into their values, 
is that just a simple um, the way that I'm trying to communicate as far as my tone or body language that they've picked up that it's manipulation? Yeah. Manipulation is when you're attempting to talk in somebody's values but aren't matching. So can you just dive a bit deeper on that one? <laughs> um, manipulation yeah. is maybe somebody's attempt to communicate in somebody's values but not effectively doing it. Right. Because when somebody's effectively doing it, their, their values are met. Right. They don't feel manipulated. Right. The same actions are going on. Right. One's more effective and one's not, that's all. Right. So if I come to you and I said, um, you know, I make a presumption of what your values are. I make a presumption that I just met them and I'm not actually meeting them, they're going to feel manipulated and you're trying to coerce me. Right. But if I actually care enough to find out what their needs are and that through questions, not telling, but questions, lead them to the actions that will help them get what they want, they feel cared for. Mm. Caring and selling are the same thing. Right. Manipulation is still an autocratic, persuasive, rhetorical game that's not quite matching their values that you're trying to use to get them to do what they want. Instead of caring about them and trying to help them get what they want and show them the links on how this will help them. Mm-hmm. It's a big difference. Mm-hmm. People are, let me give you an example. If I, I went to my uh, wife many, many years ago and I was about to go on tour. And um, if I went to my wife 15, 20 years ago and said, before she passed away, if I said to her, uh, look, babe, give her a high five. I'm heading out. I'll be traveling, be gone for a couple months. I'll, I'll call you when I can. See you, babe. I love you. Boom, out the door. She's going to probably feel like, oh, that's not very caring. That, you know, that ass. But if I go to her and I hold her in my arms, and I'm sincerely wanting to just be with her for a moment mm. and, and looking into her eyes and have a tear in my eye and have a, uh, a kiss and said, I'm um, about to go on another tour and uh, I have no idea if you're receptive to it, but I would really like to count the days down for 30 days from now so we can meet in Venice. Is there any way you can get away and meet me in Venice for a little romantic rendezvous mm. and maybe go some shopping and have a lovely dinner stay at the Danielli and um, just have a romantic gathering for a few days in Venice uh, because I'll be uh, earning pretty good money for the next month. I'll be going to four or five different countries and I'd like to meet you in Venice if we could and we can just uh, just have a romantic rendezvous. She will then go, thank you for working so hard. I love you because I'm now meeting some value of hers. Mm. So if I don't care enough to meet a value of hers, mm. And I try to manipulate it with a presumption of what those values are, and but I actually meet them. She's going to feel manipulated. She's right. going to feel that who are you? You know, you're you're, you're self righteous, thinking that that your what you think needs to be done is more important than what I think needs to be done. Mm-hmm. It's actually having equity between you and matching and realizing it. It can't be fake. Fake isn't working. Mm-hmm. It's caring. Mm-hmm. And when you get feedback, you get you'll get feedback if it's working. Mm-hmm. If it's working, they're going to be thankful. Yeah. If it's not working, they're going to let you know. They're going to be frustrated. Yeah. So manipulation is when it's ineffective. It's an attempt, but it's mm-hmm. not effectively done. Mm-hmm. When it's truly done and cared, you get a response. Mm-hmm. And that was that was beautifully shown in one of your, one of your seminars of a uh, a woman trying to control the relationship and wanted the partner to propose. And as soon as she become empowered. After the seminar, during the lunchtime, they went out and found her. She didn't need to be. She didn't even. She wasn't in any rush or need. And that's when he proposed. Gave her twenty eight thousand dollar diamond ring. Yeah, yeah. That's so, in so Calgary, Canada. It's pretty amazing. And and uh, one of the last things, definitely wanted to get in. So people are kind of we're taking them on this journey now, and um, this is what probably 
uh, is one of the most polarizing things and you did cover this in your personifying the quantum collapses when you look at the harsh reality of like wars in the world right and so one that i'm a bit more passionate around is what's happening in the republic of congo and all the minerals happening over there and a lot of the tribesmen and people over the year, natives, using uh, rape as a sense of warfare, right? It's free, doesn't need bullets, doesn't need buy guns. And uh, there's a doctor over there that's, so there's a documentary on Netflix that's gone over there and helped these women through, you know, uh, rape and giving birth and need to all these kind of things. So when someone sees something like that, it's just like, you know, that's horrible, that's just, it's, it's no good. What is the other side to that? What's happening in the universe or what's happening within... There is no one side or the other. If someone's adopted that thinking, what's happening on the other side to bring that into... Well, each case is possibly unique because, I mean, I've had the opportunity to work with probably 1,300 cases of rape, just under 1,300. Mm -hmm. And um, there's definitely patterns to it. But there's different motives for it. It's not just one motive. When I ask a person who's been raped, uh, to describe it, we find out that uh, if they just put rape, it's too broad, too too, too vague. But uh, break it down into what the actions are. It may be threat, it may be uh, deceit, it may be force, it may be constraint, it may be penetration. We break down what the actual actions are that the person has experienced. Um, it's different than just the term rape, because rape has got a connotation in people's minds. Mm -hmm. And then I, I take that same person that's gone through that and I look at exactly where have you threatened people. I make them accountable and make them look because it's to judge somebody for something we're doing uh, is a bit of a hypocrisy. So I make them go through and look at where they've done that. And I've done that, like I said, almost 1,300 cases. And I've yet to see something that we've experienced in our life that we haven't done in our life, mm -hmm. in our own form. Mm -hmm. And people don't believe that until they come to the breakthrough experience and they go, they see it firsthand. Mm -hmm. And they go, oh, wow. I mean, I did it in front of 600 people in California one time. A lady that was stabbed 18 times, hit over the head with a bottle, left bleeding to death, tied and chained to a, a big block of stone out on a highway to be run over by trucks. And, uh, you know, people go, well, how can it be benefiting that? When we got through, which took about an hour, um, Surprising, this lady was actually grateful for the event, as amazing as that may sound. But we went through and we identified every one of the components. We find out where she's done that, and she had. And then we found out uh, what were the upsides to it, because everything has two sides. In fact, the second our mind is in a traumatic experience, it dissociates and creates fantasies in the mind. It creates a dissociative state mm -hmm. to compensate. To, to It's called a freeze response. Mm -hmm. And the freeze response creates a dissociation to, to adapt mm -hmm. in that moment. And survive. And so what happens when I showed her what was actually in the mind at that moment and the benefits that came out of it, um, all of a sudden she's like going, whoa, it's, it's not a terrible event until you choose to see only consciously the negative side of it. Mm -hmm. There's another side to it. Mm -hmm. And people don't get that until they actually do the exercise. Mm -hmm. They just go by what society says. And um, so in the process of that, it's just like Oprah. She had incested when she was a child. But Oprah's Oprah today because of it. Mm -hmm. And there's another lady that was attacked and raped multiple times. She's a leader of women today. Mm -hmm. And uh, another lady in, in, uh, in London who was uh, imprisoned in a thing in her basement for 11 years by her father and raped and impregnated by her father many times. Mm -hmm. He got a 58-year sentence. Now she's empowered. And the Queen just honored her as a empowering women across the UK. Mm -hmm. So th what happens 
it's never what happens to us, it's what we decide to perceive, decide and do, mm-hmm. and how we act out of it. Mm-hmm. So when I go in there and I find out the other side to it, and the upsides to it, it surprises people, they find it. Mm-hmm. Then I go and find the benefits of when they've done it. Because mm-hmm. anything you've done that you're beating yourself up with, that you feel guilty about, you'll attract somebody to remind you of it, that you will, you will resent because they're reminding you of what you've done. Mm-hmm. And then go find out where the person's done the opposite, and then do the great discovery. At the moment you're doing that, Who's actually trying to overprotect you in your life? Mm-hmm. Who's trying to do the opposite? Mm-hmm. You'll find out those exact moments there's somebody playing the opposite, and your addiction to that is what's drawing that into your life. Mm-hmm. If you're addicted to protection, you attract aggression. Mm-hmm. If you're addicted to support, you get the bully. Nature's always got a pair of opposites going on, and people don't get that. They're, they're just wanting to avoid pain and seek pleasure, thinking they're going to get a one-sided world, but nature mm-hmm. has both sides. Mm-hmm. And then once I actually help her see that, and then I ask if it didn't happen, what would be the drawbacks? And they go, whoa, I never never asked that question. Mm. If that never happened, what would be the drawbacks to your life? Because they hold on to the fancy, well, my life would be happy if it never happened. No. What would be the drawback if it never happened? And I go through a series of very accountable questions when they're done. The hurt, the anger, the resentment, the entire perception is shifted. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden they realize this can be on the way, not in the way. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be anything that holds you back. It could be something to catalyze something amazing. Because mm-hmm. we are amazingly resilient individuals if we ask the right questions. Mm-hmm. So what's going on there, I don't know all the things that goes on in the Congo, mm-hmm. but I know that people have a fantasy that it's going to be peace without war, mm-hmm. you know, pleasure without pain, ease without difficulty, support mm-hmm. without challenge, mm-hmm. one side without the other. If I went to you and I said, you're always positive, never negative, always kind, never cruel, always giving, never taking, always generous, never stingy, always peaceful, never wrathful, you couldn't look me in the eye and say, that's me. Mm-hmm. If I said, you're the opposite, I always negative, never positive, always warful, never peaceful, you also would say, no, that's not me. Mm-hmm. But if I said, sometimes you're nice, sometimes you're mean, sometimes you're kind, sometimes you're cruel, sometimes you're generous, sometimes you're stingy, you'd immediately go, yep, that's me. Mm-hmm. Well, the world is that way. Mm-hmm. And to think the world's going to be one-sided is complete fantasy. Right, right. Not one individual has obtained that. Yeah. Let alone a marriage couple, a family, yeah. a community, a yeah. company, a society. But people live in a fantasy, and they want that fantasy and that dopamine drive, and it sells right. as in, to the ignorant yeah. that you're going to get a one-sided world. Yeah. But the world has got pe- pleasure and pain, peace and war, mm-hmm. kind and cruel, mm-hmm. the pairs of opposites. And that's needed to remodel the world to make it adapt to a changing astronomical movement through this to the solar system. We have to have both build and destroy. We, in our body, we have, at the, at the subatomic levels, we have annihilation and generation of subatomic particles. Mm-hmm. At the atomic levels, we have recombination and ionization going on. Mm-hmm. At the molecular level, we have SN1, SN2, E2, E1, uh, elimination and substitution reactions. Mm-hmm. At the molecular level, complex molecular, we have redox reactions. At a more complex, we have building and destroying, which is plasticity, and then at the cell level, we have mitosis and apoptosis. And at the mm-hmm. tissue level, we have remodeling going on. Mm-hmm. Again, plasticity. Mm-hmm. Blastus and clastus. And then we go all the way up. We find out we have the autonomics that is anabolic and catabolic mm-hmm. that undergo oxi- uh, oxidation and reduction. And so the body is constantly having a balance of opposites. Mm-hmm. But society somehow lives in a fantasy that wants a one-sided world. Yeah. But nowhere is there ever evidence of it. Yeah. So I try to ground people into reality that there's two sides to life. Yeah. And they're synchronous. And when you do, you're poised and you're present and you're powerful and you're productive and you're purposeful and you're patient and you're living in a sense of very productive life. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in helping people get grounded on that instead of living in fantasies and beating themselves up. Yeah. And I think the other, other part is that if, if someone's got a spotlight or the media has a spotlight on all the negative, or the, that's what the news is for, right? CNN well, the, the media is sensationalism. Yeah. 
It's not the truth. The truth has never been in the hands of the media. Right. The, the media is sensates. It's like politics takes extreme people. Mm -hmm. And the, you know, I was walking down the street on uh, Madison Avenue with my wife many years ago. Mm -hmm. And Dolph London and his wife were right ahead of us because they lived behind us. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, this is during the Iraq issue with George Bush Sr. back mm -hmm. then, mm -hmm. that many years ago. And all of a sudden, there's a New York One reporter on the street asking people their comments because there's an Iraq uh, demonstration in Central Park at the time. Mm -hmm. We lived around the corner from it. Mm -hmm. And when they came up, they interviewed Dolph London, and we approached them right afterwards, and then they interviewed me. And Dolph gave a very intelligent answer, a very bright answer, and I gave the best I could give. And then right up behind us was a wino with a brown paper sack with some alcohol and was walking all over the place and was drunk. And he came up, and they asked him, and he says, nuke them all, man. Nuke them all. They don't deserve to be in our country. And he just really sensational. Well, guess what showed up on TV? That? Yeah. None of ours. Right. Nothing that was reasonable. Yeah. Just the rational. Right. Because that's what makes people want to watch TV. Yeah. TV's for the sake of watching TV more so than no truth. Yeah. Does that mean, and this is a, a, a bit of a polarization again, because again, there was one time you had an apartment uh, at Trump Towers. Yeah. And you're coming down the elevator and you're walking outside and... And Donald was building a project at the time. He said, just tell me everything that was going wrong. Just tell me, because I want to know that, because I want to be ahead of the schedule kind of thing. Um, and listening to the, you talk about it, it made me think, oh, okay, it sounds like uh, John has a bit of, well, respect or, you know, um, a lot of people will put Donald Trump down as like, he's just a dirtbag, he's this, he's that. What's your, uh, do, you, do you have a, a view on him as far as what he, how he's handling the presidency of, of the states and... Well, this whole I, I've, I guess I've known Donald for, let's see, since about 92, I think is when I first met Donald. My wife uh, was friends with Ivana, and they, Ivana lived right next door to us, in fact. And then we eventually lived in Trump Tower underneath Donald. Just, we were on the 62nd floor. He was a few floors above us. So we would see Donald. And I've been to his office, and I've chatted with him, and I've done a conference with him. And he is definitely a character, without a doubt. But... I've also seen the other side. I've seen the quiet, attentive, listening, humble, um, highly intelligent, well-read. I mean, he read three of my books and had a conversation with me about it, so I know he reads. Mm. And uh, so he, he's got another side. What he does in the media and what he does for sensationalism, uh, his intention and what we think his intention are not always the same. Right. And what the media portrays about him attacking him it's probably ridiculously distracting to what he could do. Now, I don't always agree with some of the things he does. I, in fact, I think some of it is pretty outlandish. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't have intelligence. Doesn't mean he has doesn't have uh, you know the heart for people. Mm -hmm. He just has a different view. And I think he's hit his Peter principle when it comes to being a president. He did it a little bit easier in his business world than he was in president. Mm. And he'd probably be humbled by it mm. and probably grow from that and be a, a greater human being from it. But uh, Donald, I think, in his case, uh, you know, he cares. It's not, I, I just don't underestimate him for his caring. Don't underestimate him for his, his knowledge. But what's happened is he's in a setting where this is not his area of expertise. He's used to being more autocratic and he's trying to run a government mm. with a democracy mm. with an autocratic style. And he's paying right. the price. He's getting humbled by it. Right. And uh, and but what it'll do is it'll stir up America, and then bring in a new. You know, it, if you look at the history of poli politics, it goes tick tock. 
Mm-hmm. It goes from you know democ- Democrats to Republicans to Democrats to Republicans. It goes back and forth, social capital, social capital, and and it's just gonna it, when it's an extreme that came out of who was there before, right, with Bush and then Obama, and then now we're, we're going to probably now go the other extreme and come when he gets out of there. Mm. Whether he makes another term, I, I doubt it. But but the point is that we'll go the other extreme, and mm. there'll be a benefit coming out of that. We'll look back and go. We needed that catalyst. We needed all those yeah. changes to stir things up. Yeah. Because we we're just status quo and people were not believing in the status quo. But now they'll probably appreciate some of the standards we had. Yeah. So I don't see him as good or bad. I just see him as Donald. Mm-hmm. And I find that that's, um, I, don't, I don't put him on a pedestal. I don't put him in a pit. Mm-hmm. But I also, when I, when I learned from him that day in that door, when he walked outside, about having contingency plans, I was, I was impressed by his ability to pay the price to have foresight about his building. Mm-hmm. I think that's where his strength was. I don't know if politics is the strength. Right, yeah, as long as he knows how to delegate, right? <laughs> yeah, he's good at delegating. He hired the right team and he yeah. did it. Yeah. And he has a high turnover rate. And the idea that he's, he fires people is probably real. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm probably a little bit different than that. I probably have the same people that stay with me forever. Right. You know, I think I've got people live, you know, working with me for years now. Right. I don't, I'm hardly there. I think that's probably why they keep me busy on the road. They, they don't have yeah. anybody telling them what to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Loving <laughs> their values. Okay, so as we wrap up, I mean, this has been a pleasure and an absolute uh, dream to be able to interview you. And I look forward to this uh, next five days of huge continual growth. So someone's decided that they've gone through this, uh, watched this interview, like you know, they're inspired to create change. Um, they can go through and get your value factor book, which I've read, The Gratitude Effect, which is amazing. Um, they can go on online and do your value determination process. Um, but if they really want to take it to the next level, uh, they can either go facilitator or then the breakthrough experience, which is delivered all around the world. Well, I don't know of anybody that won't benefit from the breakthrough experience. I've been doing it, uh, this is the 30th year, it's almost on the 30 year mark right now, 1,055 times, and I've done it in 63 countries and still more to come. And I just don't see how somebody could go through that without getting some insights. In fact, I ask people at the end of the program, how many of you learned something this weekend that you believe you could have gone your entire life and probably never learned? Every hand goes up instantly. So I feel pretty solid that it's going to save them a lot of aggravation and time to finally get grounded. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people, as direct, the Nobel Prize winner says, it's not that we don't know so much, we know so much that isn't so. There's a lot of stuff out there that's not so, that's promulgated because it sells. And people want it, fantasies. But um, you know, a lot of people want fantasies. But I'm not interested in fantasies. I'm not. It's not a rah-rah pro- program. It's about grounding yourself and learning the the, the keys to mastery, mm-hmm. and the keys to um, living congruently and structuring your life where you can do an inspired life. Mm-hmm. I figure I've demonstrated it. It's doable. I lived on the streets. I now have a great life. So mm-hmm. I I know it's livable. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what the breakthrough offers. Mm-hmm. So that would be the, the stepping stone, because before you go to the any of the other programs, that's like the entry. Yeah, That's the open yeah. door. And so because I'm heading into then the Monday of the three-day master planning. Uh, well, the, ma- the master planning is for, you know, if, if you don't get up in the morning and dedicate your life to your own fulfillment, who is? Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to get up in the morning. Everybody's going to get up with their values, project those values onto you, and try to get you to do what they want. And that's even in your parents sometimes. So the reality is, if you don't decide, somebody else decides. If you don't empower yourself intellectually, you'll be told what to think. If you don't empower yourself to business, you'll be told what to do. If you don't empower yourself financially, you'll be told what you're worth. 
You don't empower yourself in a relationship. You'll probably be told what to do and be, honey, do this, honey, do that. If you don't empower yourself socially, be told what propaganda to believe. Don't empower yourself physically, you're told what organs to remove and drugs to take. If you don't empower yourself spiritually, you'll probably be taught some dogma that's antiquated, that's probably misleading you into some fantasy. Mm. And if you don't empower those areas, you can guarantee you're going to be conforming and fitting in instead of standing out. Mm -hmm. So master planning is for people that want to master their life and take command of what it is. It's 2,000 questions that I've gleaned over the years from consulting and just learning and things that you ask yourself to hold yourself accountable. It's like me saying, going, okay, you want to be financially independent? Great. What specifically are you going to do to make that happen? Mm -hmm. What are your action steps on what day? How are you going to do it? What, what are you going to do to serve people? What's the income? How much are you going to save? What are you going to put it? What investments are you going to do? It's holding you accountable. Because mm. I found that people that do that, they get results. Mm -hmm. And people that just fantasize with, whim, you know, with whims and fantasies of other people's goals, mm -hmm. they don't get anywhere. Yeah. They just beat themselves up. So master planning is for people that want to master their life. And breaks is about, also about master, mastering life. I, I, that's been my dream since I was a teenager. I want to master my own life. And I want to help other people master theirs. Mm. And what that looks like is each individual's decision. Mm -hmm. Maybe raising a family, maybe sailing the seas. I had a guy that went around on a sailboat around the world for about five years. That was his dream. Right. And he structured his life so he could do it. He made it happen. He didn't at the end. He had to. He had. To, he didn't have as much money as he started. Yeah. But he he did it. That's what his dream was. So it's that easy. Right? I, I tell people. I ask people instead of how do you afford to do what you want. I always ask, how can you get handsomely paid to do whatever you love? Mm. And I show them a new way of going, oh, that way you can do what you love and get paid for it. Mm. Like the woman that went uh, traveling and dancing and teaching when she was... Just like the gentleman sitting on this couch last night. Yeah. He's now, I, uh, I bet you right now, he's taking action steps towards this new, mm -hmm. new adventure. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Uh, I, I look forward to getting stuck in tomorrow. And um, again, anyone watching this interview, if they want to take the right steps, we've got the books, the resources, but the breakthrough, uh, definitely attend. It's often Australia, America, uh, uh, South Africa, all around the world. Uh, but I'll give you my testimonial experiences after I go through it. It'll be fantastic. Thank yeah. you very much. Thank you. Thanks.